Thanks for coming back. Uh, it's great, great to see you all here. Um, so, yeah, let's let's just start with prayer. It seems like a good place. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. So let's take a couple of moments to be quiet with the Lord. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and be with us. Maybe think about a person or a situation in your life that would really benefit from being touched by God's grace. Just imagine yourself lifting that to the Lord. Think over the past week of any blessings that you can remember that you received, anything that would point you to the Lord's goodness simply to say thank you to him. Think of some grace that you personally would like to receive today during this Lenten season and ask him for that gift, that grace. offer a special prayer for the people of Ukraine, ask the Lord's protection for them, consolation. A difficult prayer to pray for the conversion of Vladimir Putin and for God's mercy upon him. And think of the week ahead place where you know you could really use God's grace to be with you and ask him to be there ahead of time. Lord, we thank you for this time, for this day, for this season of Lent. Give us grace in any way possible so that we may keep our eyes fixed on you, draw close to you, Give us a grace this evening that our hearts and our minds may be opened to learning more about sin, to learning more about the bad news, the state of life that led up to your coming. Let this time truly be a blessing for us. Pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. So um, we'll just get started. But so as we as we get started, uh, last week there were some people who, who missed, and they just asked if there was a recording of it. Uh, and I know there's you know people have various things going on. Uh, I always encourage you to come live. Uh, there's just something nice about being in a room with 150 people, uh, you know, being together in this, right? Trying to present ourselves before the Lord to let Him overwhelm us with the gospel. There's something really nice about being live for that. Uh, but if you do have to miss, uh, there's this website you could go to soundcloud.com slash fatherbrianquiava. I also put my homilies on there, so you're welcome to go and uh, listen to them 
if you'd like. Um, and then other various talks uh, can go up there too. Okay, let's, let's move forward. So our goals for this evening. So we have, of course, our main goal, which is um, to establish or continue to establish, we might say, a firm foundation for your life with God and my life with God. In other words, we want to look at life from a biblical perspective to ask the question, how is it that the Bible looks at the world? That's, that's the firm foundation that we want to establish for ourselves as Catholic Christians. Or if there's not any, if there's someone here is not Catholic, as a Christian, how does it, how does the Bible see the world? And that's how I want to see the world. Uh, because this is God's word revealed to us. Then there's a sub-goal, uh, a smaller goal for us this evening. And that is that we want to understand more fully the bad news. If you remember, we talked about uh, D-Day being this incredible, extraordinary, life-changing event for people living in France. When the Allied forces, you know, they came thousands of miles across the ocean to land at Normandy to go to war for the French citizens, to set them free. It would, it would be foolish if there wasn't a war going on in France at, at that time in 1944. It would be foolish for the Allied forces to land at the beach and nothing's, nothing's wrong. Right? They, they get out of the boat and they're like ready to fight and the people of France, France are like, what are you doing here? Right? It presupposes that there is already an enemy that needs to be fought. Uh, and so for us, when we talk about Jesus, it presupposes that there's an enemy and that there's bad news involved with this enemy. So tonight, this is what we're going to look at. Right? So we can, we can say this is leading up to the next two weeks. So this week is... is um, it's actually really, it's difficult, it's heavy, because the bad news is horrific beyond anything you can have in a nightmare. If we talk about the good news as being something so incredible, so extraordinary that you can't possibly imagine how good it is, it seems like it's only fitting that the state of life before that was worse than you could possibly imagine it to be. So there's actually, it's a strange thing that we, we kind of want to try to let ourselves get to a place of despair this evening, a place of hopelessness, so that we can recognize without the grace of Jesus, we are hopeless. And we are, we are stuck without him. That's, that's what we want to ask for. Uh, so this week is it's heavy. Last week was really light and fun, of course, counting the stars and, and all that. Uh, this week is not like that. It's going to be much heavier, and it's meant to be that way. So maybe just, I'm going to say this at the end too, but just an encouragement. If it's really heavy for you, you need to come back next week and the week after. You need to, uh, because that's where the good news happens, right? Okay, so moving forward, our sort of theme verse that we have, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, St. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we talked about these three key terms, gospel, power, and salvation. The gospel is good news, but not just good news. It is incredible, life-changing, transformational news. The, it's the best news, like better than you could possibly imagine. That's what it's meant to be for us as Christians, people who believe in the gospel. It's meant to be something that like explodes from within us in the most powerful of ways. That suddenly like lifts any cloudiness from our minds or any sort of 
wondering or questioning about how do I see life, it's meant to suddenly help us see clearly and answer those super important questions in life of why am I here? Where am I going and how do I get there? Right? To see things clearly uh, as the dynamite, the power of the gospel explodes into my life and it makes me healthy. It somehow brings into my life this sense of, of I'm aware that I'm broken, I'm aware that there's something lacking in me, and when I receive the gospel, it overwhelms me and makes me whole. So that when I, when I hear the gospel and I, I submit and surrender myself to it, it's like, I don't need anything else. I have all that I need. And all of this is summarized in this one word, kerygma, a Greek word that means proclamation. And the proclamation of the gospel is meant to be something that changes everything about life. Even more than it changed life for the French citizens on June 6, 1944, it is meant to change so much more for us here in the year 2022. This is what the Lord wants his gospel message to be for us. So we have this word kerygma. Do you remember the four parts? Just to think, do you remember the four parts? The goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, God's response to our sin and our response to what God has done. So I like to, I like to think of it as something of a dialogue, right? So the first part, God does something, and then we do something. And then God does something, and then we do something in return, right? So it's sort of back and forth. We can, we're going to see tonight that the first part of the back and forth uh, is not proportional to the second part. We're going to see what sin and its consequences are. But first, maybe just a little bit of review of what we spoke about last week. So why is there something rather than nothing? That's because the good God freely chose to bring everything into existence out of nothing. No one forced him to. No one coerced him to. He freely did it, and he did it effortlessly. It didn't cost him anything to breathe everything into existence, which is just incredible. And everything that he made is good, or at least was good in the beginning. We'll learn about that was good uh, this evening. And then we, the human person, we're the highlight. Right? We are made in his image and likeness. We're his favorite creature. I was, uh, so on Mondays during Lent, I'm also talking to our middle school students in our school here and um, presenting to them basically the same information, a little bit of a shorter version. No, you're not allowed to come. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I, I began by asking each of the classes you know, about this. Who is God's favorite? And we should all be saying, I am. I'm his favorite. You, individually, are his favorite. Somehow, we're limited, right? We're limited, so we can really only have like one favorite. But God is not limited in the same way that we are. And so he's actually able to look at each one of us and say to us, you are so precious to me. And I love you more than I love any other creature. I care so intensely about you. And I know everything about you, more even than you know about yourself. I know all of your perfections and I know all of your imperfections. I know all of the ways in your life that you're like really proud of and you're really striving to serve me and please me and I just delight in them. And I also know about the ways in your life that you're not proud of, of yourself, that you're actually maybe a little ashamed. And yet in the midst of all of that, I love you so intensely. You are my favorite. So who is God's favorite creature? Exactly. Like, remember that. 
It's so important, especially you guys, remember that as we talk about things for the rest of the evening. Because we're going to talk about heavy things, serious things. And it can seem like we're talking about things like, oh, you know, like, we're, Father's just trying to get us down. No, like, this is all because we're his favorite creature. And God having a favorite creature, he wants the best for us. And nothing less than the best for us. What else? God made us. This is part of his plan. God made us to be divinized, to partake of his divine nature, to become like him. This is his plan for us, which is just incredible. Right? Remember, we talked about all the stars and the universe and everything that he made. That one star, you can fit seven quadrillion Earths. To count to a quadrillion seconds would take 31 million years. And God made the one that can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside. And like he's so glorious and so grand and so magnificent. And yet somehow he invites us. He makes us for the purpose of becoming like him, sharing in his glory. It's amazing. That's who you are to him. It's just incredible. Made, to be made in his image and likeness, it includes the gift of reason, to actually be able to think critically. It includes free will, and it means, uh, it means that we are made for relationship with God. We can see from this that it's clear that in our world, there are no unimportant persons. Everyone is a treasure to the Lord God. Every single human person that exists. What else? We found that real happiness is to be loved and to love, for God is love. And in that order, I recognize that first, that I am loved by God intensely. And so in return, I am to love. I love him in return, and I love the people around me in return, trying desperately to help other people come to know his great love for them. Because it's so darn awesome. God is far more powerful than anything we could comprehend. Far more. He's so much bigger than we really let him be. The fruit of seeing all of this is great wonder and trust in the fact that the one who constructed the universe cares for and loves you personally more than anything else he's made. And up to this point, everything sounds wonderful. That's going to change right now. Because, right, all we have to do is look out in the world and just simply ask the question, what the hell happened? A person, honestly, sitting here could ask the question, if God is so good, why do people get cancer? If God is so good, why is there divorce? Why, if God is so good, why are there things like child abuse? If God is so good, why do people lose their jobs? If God is so good, why is there one country trying to destroy another country right now? For seemingly no good reason. If God is so good, why, 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 why? We can ask all of these questions. And they're fair questions to ask. That's where we transition into the second part. So what we want to do uh, this evening is we want to take some time to expose what we can call the enemy of our race. So we can take some time to expose, to really get a good look at the one who deceived the human race into rebelling against God. We want to take like a big floodlight 
and not just a big floodlight. You know, like sometimes when uh, when you're watching a movie or you see on TV, there's someone running from the cops, and they get like a helicopter, and they've got the big light, and they like surround him. There's there's people all around him, and then above him, there's another light from the helicopter. This is what we want to do. We want to expose as much as possible the enemy of our race, the one whose one job from his own perspective, is to destroy us, to keep us from receiving the promises that God has for us. This is, this is super important because we're dealing with someone who is very real. Sometimes what can happen uh, in our lives as Christians or among the Christian community is people can develop some like false ideas about God. So one example of this came a few years ago from the Superior General of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, where he said, Symbols are part of reality, and the devil exists as a symbolic reality, not as a personal reality. This is problematic simply because this is not how Jesus talks about the devil, and this is not how the church talks about the devil. So if, if we have this idea that, well, you know, like the, the concept of, of evil or the concept of the devil is just that, it's just a concept, it's, it's just a symbol of, of evil in the world. We need, to, we need to take that and set that aside and actually look at what Jesus says about the devil and actually look at what the church teaches about this. Uh, it's important for us to have correct ideas about the invisible realities that God made. Right? He created, we, we profess this every Sunday, things visible and invisible. That there is an invisible reality. There are invisible creatures uh, that exist and that are present in our lives in various ways. Some of them good, many of them good, but some of them also are evil. Some are an enemy to us. So we want to look at five points, uh, five or so points, about our enemy, and not necessarily in this order, but we want to look at who he is, his identity, and then we're going to look at the names that Scripture reveals for this person, for this character. Uh, we want to look at why he rebelled against God. We want to look at his strategy we want to look at his end game. In other words, what's his goal for you and for me? And we want to look at the consequences of sin. The goal is to surround him and get the best possible look we can at him so that we can begin to anticipate his movements, to anticipate his tricks, his deceptions, these kinds of things. So first, his identity. Where do we see in scripture uh, and in the doctrines of the church talk about the devil. So first, the doctrine. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a big book that explains what we believe as Catholic Christians in terms of our doctrines, uh, it says this. Uh, I believe this is quoting St. John Paul II. The church teaches that Satan was at first a good angel made by God. The devil and the other demons were indeed created naturally good by God, but they became evil by their own doing. So the first thing we notice here is that he's a creature of God. He is not equal to God. He cannot compete with God. So that's, that's, I think this is really important also as we talk about these heavy things to realize that we're dealing with someone who is not as powerful as the Lord our God is powerful. He is a creature of him. But then in addition to look that everything that God makes is good. And if it becomes evil, it is by its own choice. It is by its own doing. Uh, and so that's what the catechism is getting at here. Jesus talks about the devil as this. Now the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Right, so he's a creature of God. And yet Jesus speaks of him in this term, which is a pretty strong term. The ruler of this world. What does that imply? It implies that he has a kind of power over this world that we're living in. 
He has a kind of authority over this world that we're living in. So while, while we, we don't need to take him too seriously as though he's as powerful as God, at the same time, we cannot simply be dismissive of him as though he's not powerful. Jesus very clearly calls him the ruler of this world. That's pretty strong. St. Paul, uh, in a couple of places, he calls him the God with a lowercase g, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Right? These are terms that are, are pretty strong. And so, uh, again, we just we can't take him too lightly, but instead to see, who, see him for who he is and actually to be aware of his power, to be aware of the kind of authority that he has. But then more than anything, as we observe him, we lean on the grace of God, always leaning on the grace of God. Right? Scripture also says the first image we see of him is he calls, uh, he's called a serpent. The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. More subtle. Other translations say more cunning. Other translations more deceptive, the most deceptive. In other words, what's that, what does that mean? It means he's smart. People who are subtle are smart, intelligent. He's an angel created by God, and angels are not limited in the same way that we human beings are limited. He is more intelligent than us. He can outsmart us. He can outdeceive us. He can, he can lead us astray if we engage with him. This is important uh, to, to point out. So we'll see more about this in a minute. Uh, but first, to ask this question, why does a good angel rebel against God? And not just a good angel. The tradition talks about how Satan may have been, or perhaps was, God's most powerful angel seated closest to his throne. So why does God's most powerful angel created good rebel against him? The Bible says that it's envy. Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 24 says, Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. So let's ask the question, what is envy? Envy is not quite the same as jealousy. Uh, jealousy is not always a bad thing. So if I'm jealous of someone, that can actually motivate me. Uh, if I see like a good quality in them, it can motivate me to want to be like them. I become jealous of that quality and it makes me want to attain it along with them. Envy is different. Envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or good fortune. In other words, it's me saying, I resent you that you have this quality, and I don't. And I wish that you didn't have it. This is what's going on. So, so as the tradition goes, uh, the, the Lord, after he creates everything, he reveals to his angels his plan for the human person, which, if you remember, is to make us like God. And so he reveals this to superior beings to us. The, the angels are superior beings to us. So some of those superior beings, the devil, hears about this plan and he despises that God would do such a thing. That he would take a lowly creature like a human being and raise it, elevate it to be even greater than the angels. And so he becomes envious. He becomes resentful, discontent. And so he decides to go to war. Who does he go to war against? Us. Us. 
Yes, you're exactly right, Kathy. Us. No, you're just great. Praise the Lord. He doesn't go to war against God. Remember, he is a creature of God, and he is an intelligent creature of God, knowing that he cannot compete with God. So what does he do? He goes to war against God's favorite creature, the one that he loves the most. Who is God's favorite creature? I am. I am God's favorite creature. You individually are. So it is, yes, it is the human race. But it's super important for us to realize that you individually are God's favorite creature. And so if the devil goes to war against God's favorite creature, that means he personally goes to war against you because he is envious of what God has planned for you. And he can't stop thinking about how much he hates you. It consumes him. And he, he wants nothing more than to destroy you so that you can't receive the promises of God. He is not good. Someone else talks about it like this. He, that is the devil, perceived that in fulfilling the role God had planned for him, according to heaven's logic of love, he would be called upon to serve creatures of far less power and excellence than himself. He envied the good that he saw coming to them, and he resented their destined place. You hear this? The devil, he realized that in God's plan of love, he was going to have to serve the human person. And so he became resentful of that. The sight of these happy creatures filled the devil and his fallen angels with anger and envy. They took thought as to how they might mar the work of God and destroy the destiny of this newly created race. They set about to enslave those whom they had been meant to serve and to degrade those who had been assigned such an exalted place into the lowly slime beneath their feet. His game plan is to degrade and enslave God's favorite creature. That means... There is someone who wants to degrade me and enslave me and you. We need to really be aware of this, right? So we can see this, right? That we have an enemy who is more powerful than anything you can fathom. Not as powerful as God, but still more powerful than what we can truly understand. And he has a plan for your life, which is total destruction. He wants to ruin you. Because he despises you. And he longs that at the end of your life, he has you in his possession so that he can say to you, you pathetic, foolish person, you thought rebelling against God was going to make you happy. And now you have no idea what I have in store for you. This is the consuming envy that he, that he has, and this is what that consuming envy does to him. It causes him to have one goal, which is to destroy you. Right? We tend to think of sin as like, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not, I'm not hurting anyone else. No, but actually, it, it is a big deal. Scripture clearly shows that we can miss out on receiving the promises that God has for us. That we can miss out on receiving divinity from him. 
And the devil knows this. And so he makes that his goal. St. John says in his gospel, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. To steal you from the Lord's love so that he can kill you and destroy you. Preventing you from receiving life in eternity with God. Now we need to ask ourselves, right? Who, who is he? Keep asking to look at his names. So in scripture, names mean something. So we find here in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the great dragon, we could say that ancient serpent, right, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So these two names, devil and Satan, they have meanings. Uh, in scripture, sometimes you'll see this, that people have names and those names mean something about that kind of a person. Example, so in the book of Genesis, we meet this guy named Abram, which means exalted father. Abram receives a promise from God that he is going to be a father with as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. A lot, right? And so his name is changed to Abraham, which means father of nations. Right? So this reveals something about who he is and what he's going to be in, in the grand scheme of things in the world. So too here, our enemy, the devil and Satan, these names have meaning. So Satan means accuser. So he accuses he accuses God, as we'll learn in a minute, of not being good. He says things to you, like what we talked about. If your God is so good, why is he letting this happen? Where's your God now? And this is what he, he accuses. He accuses the people around you, so that you begin to wonder, gosh, I don't know if I can trust anyone around me. These people all seem kind of shady, untrustworthy. I don't know if I should trust them. And then he accuses you and me personally so that sometimes we can actually begin to doubt ourselves, to doubt our own goodness. Am I sure I'm God's favorite creature? You might have thoughts like, well, if you told these people this about you, they wouldn't be interested in you. If you shared this with them, well, you're lucky they don't know it. Right, these accusations. What, what does accusation do? If I accuse somebody of something, it makes doubt creep in. Right? If I was, if I was to walk into the room and, and just start by saying, you know what? Every time I talk to Kathy, she lies to me. <laughs> Every single time. And I'm just really upset about it. What would happen, especially to the people that know her, they'd be like, gosh... I thought Kathy was a really great lady, but I don't, I don't, know, if, I don't know if that's true anymore. Right? This, is what, this is what accusation does, is it brings doubt. It makes us wonder whether what we thought we knew about that thing or that person is true. And if we wonder, that means our, our thinking becomes clouded. And if you remember, part of being made in the image and likeness of God is that we have the ability to reason, to think critically. And if my thinking is clouded, that means my ability to think critically is hindered. And I'm not able to think as clearly as I could, and so I can't actually live in being in a, a true image and likeness of God. This is what accusation does. He wants to cloud our thinking so that we begin to wonder about the goodness of God, so that we begin to wonder about the goodness of the people around our, us, and to, that we begin to wonder about our own goodness, in fact. So that we're stuck in this place of just like, I don't know what's true anymore. And I don't, I don't even know who I can turn to because I don't know who's trustworthy. 
Maybe that sounds like something that's going on in the world right now. This is, this is the work of Satan, the accuser. The name devil, it means divider. He tries to split things, divide things and people as much as possible, to divide us against God, to divide husbands and wives, to divide parents and children, to divide siblings, to divide families at large, to divide church communities, to divide states, nations, the world. You can probably think of a few examples. We're divided in our country, in our, our world, about pretty much everything. Right? This is the work of the devil. Satan and the devil. Same person, different names. So we need to look at his strategy. So we're going to look at scripture throughout this. We're going to mostly look at Genesis chapter 3, but before we get to Genesis chapter 3, we need to, we need to look really closely. So we're going to focus really closely on a few verses here. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, uh, this is before the woman is created in the second creation story. So the Lord is speaking to the man. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Okay, so first thing we can notice, that God provides nothing but bounty for them. Right? We can try to focus on the commandment to avoid eating from the tree, but first to recognize, he says, I'm giving you all of this to eat. It's all yours. So he provides nothing but abundance. Before sin, there's no illness. There's no death. And he gives them generously to eat, more than they could possibly need. And then he throws in this commandment as though to say, but you need to trust me. You need to trust me. Okay, so that's, that's just something that's really important to remember. Okay, now we want to notice the strategy. So remember that it, uh, the beginning of this passage talks about how he's the most subtle creature. Okay, so it says, the serpent said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So zoom in on the serpent's accusation here. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What's he doing? He knows the command. He's out fishing. Right? He knows that he's more intelligent, far more intelligent than the woman. And so he's out fishing just to try to get her to bite. Because he knows that if he can engage her in a conversation, it's over. He can continue to be subtle, continue to deceive, and get her to take the fruit. Right? Because we know, we can look at the passage, we know what God said. God said you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So now we need to look at, okay, how does Eve answer? We see clearly what God commanded. How does Eve answer? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So there's a question. Is this what God said? Do you see the difference? So God said... You may eat freely of the tree of the garden, but of the tree you shall not eat. Eve says, no, he said we can eat of the trees, but of the fruit of the tree you shall not eat, neither shall you touch it. Do you see how she's becoming confused? She's, she's twisting the commandment of God. She gets it right, but then she adds something to it. As though she's not fully sure, and so like to be safe, she's going to add some more to it. You see this, like there's there's... The thinking becoming clouded 
through the accusation, through the engagement of the serpent. So what happens? The serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's his strategy? His strategy is to cast the good father in suspicion. He's hurling an accusation at the father so that she begins to doubt his goodness. It's as though he's saying, if God really loved you, he'd let you eat from that tree. But he doesn't really love you. He's limiting you. He's restricting you. He's stingy. He's just trying to keep you down. He knows that if you were to eat from that tree, you'd be like him, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to be happy. Good thing for you, you're smart enough. Good thing for you, you can make the decision for yourself. You've got it. You see how there's, there's, there's both this accusation as well as a kind of flattery that's taking place. As though he's trying to convince her, you know better than God. You don't, you don't need him to tell you what to do. This is what happens. So then what happens? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This, brothers and sisters, is what we commonly refer to as the fall. What happened? Oh, excuse me. There we go. I missed a slide. Okay, this is called the fall. So the fall is uh, rooted in this basic understanding that says, I'm going to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't need God for that. I can determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't need God for that. And so she takes the fruit and she eats from it and she gives some to her husband and he eats from it. So when the woman eats from the fruit, she cuts herself off from God who is life. And so if you cut yourself off from the one who is the source of life, if you take a branch and cut it off from a tree, the only result is that the branch is going to die. The only natural result is death. This is what happens. And then on top of that, we need to talk about Adam's sin of omission, right? It's not like it's just Eve. He's, it says he's there with her. And he's the one who actually received the command of God in Genesis chapter 2. So he should have said to Eve as she was talking to the serpent, Hey, don't talk to that thing. You know that's not what God said. But instead, he sat back in the silence and participated in the rebellion. He participated in the open rebellion of man and woman against God. And so what happens? Their eyes were opened. Before, when they were in the garden, it talks about how they were able to be with each other. They were naked and yet without shame. They were able to freely be in the garden. And now their eyes are opened. And so they're able to see each other and they say, oh my gosh, you've never looked at me like that before. You're not actually looking at me to love me. You're looking to use me. And so what do they do? They make clothing for themselves so they can hide their shame from each other. So we see in the, in the garden, 
uh, that there are various consequences to sin. Now, this this is like a really big point because again, we can we can talk about sin as like something that cuts us off from God, and so it's like okay, like but what does that really mean? Like I'm still alive, I might commit this mortal sin, but I'm still living, and so like is it really that big of a deal? No, this is this is really important. I am either in God's possession or I am in someone else's possession. My allegiance is either to him or it's to the ruler of this world who is the enemy of our race. There's no in-between where I can say, well, you know, like most of the time I'm in God's possession, but, you know, I've got this, this thing over here, these couple of things that I just sort of like, no, if I'm, right, if I'm determining for myself what is good and what is evil, if I'm saying I don't need God to tell me what is good and what is evil, that means I am placing my allegiance not in his possession, but in someone else's possession. There's no middle ground here. So this is like a big deal. So we want to look at the consequences of sin. Like what is what does sin do? Uh, we talked, we already noticed one of them. Their eyes were open, so they hide from each other. And then right after that, it says this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Again, before they were able to be with God in the garden. Now they hear him coming. And rather than rejoicing that God has come to them to spend time with them, they hide. So we see what happens. Relationships are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. We hide things from him all the time, or we ignore him all the time, or we pretend like we don't know the commandments all the time, or we pretend like the commandments don't really matter all the time. Our relationship with God is now broken. Man's relationship with woman is broken. They hide from each other, and they experience shame. And this isn't just like a, a man versus woman thing, but now it's like, look at the world and see how people are super divided and broken in their relationships. We bicker about each other. We gossip about each other. We yell at each other. Right? This is a huge problem in schools. Even though it doesn't matter how much we talk about how bullying is bad, kids are still bullying each other. Right? Our relationship with each other is broken. And there's an incredible amount of shame that people are experiencing. And they're just afraid to share it with anyone else because they don't know who they can trust. We see man's relationship with creation is broken. Chaos enters in. Before, there was order to the universe, order to the world, and now chaos comes. Now we have a fear of creation rather than dominion over it. We fear things like the weather. We fear things like animals. And again, not for necessarily bad reason, because the animals have gone into chaos, because the weather has gone into chaos. This relationship is broken that once we were to have dominion over, now in some ways we're like subjected to it. And then lastly, man's relationship with himself is broken. We develop diseases and various illnesses which are mental and psychological. There is a pandemic, not of COVID, but of anxiety in our world today. More people are struggling with intense anxiety and depression maybe than ever before. This is all a result of sin. People develop physical illnesses like cancer, leukemia. We break our bones. Our bodies decay. Aches and pains of growing old. Right? And then, of course, we all die. Every single one of us will be buried in the ground someday. This is all a result of sin that 
everything around us, including ourselves, is broken and is in need of healing. That's not the worst consequence of sin. The worst consequence of sin that can sort of, that, that sort of umbrellas itself over all of these is this. That St. Paul says, all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. The worst consequence of sin is that we as a human race are enslaved to sin. So sin, when we talk about this, it's both a verb and like a dominion. So we, we tend to just talk about sin as like something I do or I don't do, an action or an inaction on my part. But scripture is really clear that sin is that for sure, but it's also this, this power that hovers over us. It's like a kingdom, uh, an authority, a government that hovers over the human race and exerts control over us. And we're enslaved to it. No matter how hard we try, we can't break free from it. We have sold ourselves to a power against which we cannot compete. Maybe you can relate to this passage from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. How many times there are things that you don't like doing, you know you're not supposed to do them, you don't even want to do them, and for some reason you do them anyway. This happens to me all the time. I say something and it's like, why did I say that? I do something, why the heck did I do that? I don't even like doing this thing. Right, because this is the dominion of sin. We are enslaved to sin because of the fall. And then on top of that, right, all people die. Nobody beats death. A person might beat cancer. You're not going to beat death. The dominion of sin, the dominion of death, hovers over the whole race. These are not just things that happen, but they are like authorities or governments that exert their force over us. And so they actually affect our own actions. They affect the way that we see. They affect the way that we live our lives. We are utterly helpless against these forces. Stuck in sin. You guys, this is the bad news. We talk about the good news of Jesus, which is coming next week. Come back. We first have to truly understand the bad news. And the bad news is horrible news. This, this uh, theologian from the early 1900s talks about this. Death is so great, so aggressive, so pervasive, and so militant a power that the only fitting way to speak of death is similar to the way one speaks of God. Death is the living power and presence in this world which feigns to be God. Scott Hahn talks about this in his commentary to the Romans. The controlling metaphor of this section is slavery and freedom. Paul paints a black or white picture of a human situation. Either one lives in service to sin and remains in spiritual bondage, or lives in obedience to God and enjoys liberation from sin's captivity. It is a stark either-or, no fence-sitting, no third option. Another person says this. Two slides here. No one is capable of being captain of his own soul, master of her own fate the poem says. 
Each of us is worked upon by unconscious impulses of which we are not even aware and over which we have little control. No one is free in the domain of this world as it is. Either we must live our lives in the clutches of soul-destroying powers, or we are delivered into the obedience of faith. There is no way for the human being to move from the domain of sin to the domain of God's righteousness unless there is an invasion of the kingdom of sin from outside. The domain of sin leads to death. Its goal and purpose is death. There is no way out of this downward-moving spiral of dissolution. I think just a little bit of foreshadowing, right? There's there, uh, The only way to escape this is if there's an invasion from the outside, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks. But first, just to get back to this question, why does a good angel of God rebel against him? Because of envy. He is envious of you, and that envy consumes him to the point that he will not rest until he does everything he can to steal you from following God's ways so that he can kill you and destroy you. I can tell you this all day long, myself, as I've been talking about this, I have been experiencing accusation after accusation after accusation. People don't care about this. The kids, they're not getting anything out of it. It's probably not even accurate to talk about this. Leading to doubt upon doubt upon doubt, right? This is what happens. He does not rest. It's super important for us to know this. Maybe a really good image to help us as we, as we finish up here. So imagine yourself being captured by a slave trafficker. So there are more slaves in today's world than there have been in the history of, of human history. Uh, imagine yourself captured by a slave trafficker for any given purpose. This person chains you up and he leads you into a dark room where there are more chains on the wall. And he chains you to the wall and he starts to walk away. And as he walks away, he just says to you, I have such things planned for you. And then he closes the door and it's just pitch black. And you think about your life moving forward. And your life means nothing but being abused and exploited and used over and over and over and over and over again. And there is no hope for you. For the rest of your life, that's what your life looks like. This is the despair that we need to like let ourselves experience. The dark place that we need to let ourselves go to. So that when we come back next week and the week after and we receive the good news of Jesus... It can be something that actually breaks apart the darkness that we're experiencing right now and actually explodes from within us to truly overwhelm us with the grace of God. But we can't, we can't get there until we first get here. I said it's heavy. It is. So some uh, discussion, I call them discussion questions, maybe some reflection questions. What do you think about all this? 
I've uh, I've given this th these these presentations uh, a couple other places, and there was there was one group of people uh, who were just like, "No, Father, you're 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 off on this." They're saying, "No, isn't it like to be human is to sin, or to sin is to be human? Like we just can't help it." No, actually, like that's not how God intended it. He did not intend for the human person to rebel against Him. That was not part of His intention. But rather, his intention was to create us to be like him, as glorious, as magnificent, as grand as him. And the fact that we as a human race have rebelled against him openly is a great tragedy. So what, like, what do you think about with that? You know, like what, what comes in your mind, when, especially when you think about the great promise that God had for us. And then you think about that first sin, the fall. And how that led to all of these consequences. What do you think? Does this give you any new insights into your life? Your struggle against sin? Can you notice the strategy of Satan in your life? The accusations that you maybe hear in your mind? The flattery? Those times where maybe you're tempted to think you know, you know better than the commandments. You know better than the church of God. Can you notice the divisions in your life, the lies maybe that you've believed, the temptations that you struggle with most often and oftentimes give into? Can you notice the different places in your life where you really give into discouragement? As I think about these, I can notice a lot of different things in my life, and it can help me to see, okay, this is his strategy. Because the thing is, for each one of us, we have different backgrounds. We have different contexts going on in our lives, and so we're prone to different ways of being tempted. We're prone to different ways of being discouraged. We're prone to different ways of being flattered. And so he approaches us. Remember, he goes to war against God's favorite creature. Who's God's favorite creature? I am. I am, exactly. So he knows each of us, maybe even better than we know ourselves. And so he approaches each of us from that very individual, personal aspect. So some of us might be more prone to being tempted in a particular kind of way, while others are more prone to discouragement in another kind of way. Can you notice those things in your life, your life, where you're more prone to being attacked by the enemy? And then lastly, does this impact how you might pray moving forward? Does it impact how you might live does it stir up any possible changes that might need to take place in your life? I think these are things that are just worthwhile to consider. Let's finish with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we come before you this evening. We ask for your blessing. I ask for your blessing upon these people, your favorite creature ask for your blessing upon them, especially any who might be struggling with accepting these teachings. I, I pray for any who might be struggling with a despair that seems like it has no end. I pray, Jesus, for each of them that your grace may fall upon them, that you may fill them with new insights, and insights that don't lead ultimately to final despair, but insights that lead to a fresh kind of courage, a fresh kind of hope a kind of hope that looks forward to receiving the good news of your Son, Jesus. Draw out of them a deep faith. 
draw out of them a longing, a desire to be obedient to you in all things. Draw out of them a longing and desire to receive your promise that you give to each of us. Open our eyes, Father. Give us a gift to think clearly, to withstand the accusations, to withstand the divisions, to withstand the lies and the temptations and the flatteries. Give us your gift of grace, Father, that we may live with you always. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right. God bless you. Thank you. Bye -bye.